The following audio is from Downtown Church, a multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit downtownchurch.com. All right, let's go now to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and let's pay heed to God's Word. Um, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not therefore thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. The Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one of you will receive his condemnation from God. I have applied all things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become in our still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I have become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Why do you wish, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray together. Father, we desperately need you this morning. We need you to come by your Spirit to produce repentance and faith in this room, in me, in us. And Father, for some, that will mean being born again. For others, it will be a revival of sorts, a renewal, a coming back. And Father, for others, it might be an encouragement in Christ in a very lonely or time of abandonment. But Father, we know that you 
are the teacher through your Son Jesus and His Spirit. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That you would be at work, that these would be your words and not mine. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my son-in-law, Jed, took uh, his son, Braden, little five-year-old Braden, to his first Memphis Grizzly game this past Wednesday. And they sent a picture to the family, and little Braden has uh, his uh, Grizz jersey on, and, and the look on his face is just like, yeah, you know, I get to go with Dad to a Grizzly game. Now, if you, if you talk to Braden, I mean, his Grizz talk is not that developed. Uh, he doesn't have much of a game when it comes to talking Grizz, but he's got a little bit. You can ask him, who's your favorite player? And sometimes he'll say Gasol or Zebo. but sometimes he has to look at his daddy and say, now, daddy, who's my favorite player? And, and Jed told me at the game that, uh, that he was listening to the chanting, and he looked up, he said, Dad, what, are, are they saying Jesus? And he said, no, they're saying defense, defense, defense. <laughs> but he said by the end of the game, though, he was standing up and he was in there with the crowd. And when they were yelling defense, he was yelling defense. You see, discipleship is little more than... And being a disciple is little more than coming under someone else, letting them tell us and show us what we are to imitate as they imitate the Father. Uh, You see, little Braden is imitating what he's seen to the point that he loves it. And, And that's precisely what Paul is saying in this passage He says, for though you have countless guides in Christ, this is verse 16, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So I urge you then, be imitators of me. I mean, that's what discipleship is. Be imitators of me. In chapter 11 and verse 1, he says this. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And you say, well, I could never do that. That sounds so arrogant. Let me just tell you right now that everybody in here, you are making disciples. We are all in the process of discipleship. Because if there's anything that is true about us as humans, it's the reality that we are pliable. We love, we have passion, we follow, and we lead. We influence always those around us by what we love and how we live toward what we love. I mean, that's just what it means to be human. We are all making disciples. The only question is, what are we making disciples of? This this rang loud and true to me when I saw that stimulating, intellectually stimulating movie, The Devil Wears Prada. Um, Meryl Streep plays the, the head of a fashion magazine. And she's kind of the, a mover and shaker in the fashion industry. Uh, she's like this goddess that everybody worships and, and everybody tries to please. 
Well, Anne Hathaway um, needs a job. She knows nothing about the fashion industry. She thinks she cares less. Uh, she, she could care less about fashion, but she becomes Meryl Streep's personal assistant. And the first day on the job, uh, she comes just dressed in whatever she obviously found in her closet, and, and she walks in to a meeting that Meryl Streep is having with her designers. And they are putting together an outfit, which will be the outfit, you know, coming out in the spring or fall or whenever those things come out. And Anne Hathaway looked at it as they were trying to decide which belt to put with it, and she kind of, you know, kind of scoffed under her breath, and Meryl Streep stops. And the whole room goes to Meryl Streep and Anne Hathaway. And it's this tense moment, and this is what Meryl Streep says. She says, oh, okay, I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you just select something. I don't know. How about that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, um, that you're wearing now? Because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back. But what you don't know is that sweater is not just blue, and it's not turquoise, and it's not lapis or lapis. It's actually cerulean. And you're so blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns. And then I think it was uh, Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets. And then cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you, no doubt, fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs, and it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when, in fact, you're wearing the sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. We are pliable. If we weren't, then the marketing industry wouldn't be a multi-billion dollar industry. We can be sold. We can be led. We can be convinced. So what are you convinced of and what are you selling and what are you a disciple of and what are you making disciples of? Because we're all doing it. Discipleship in the Scriptures is falling in love with Jesus and coming under His authority, coming under His kingship and saying, lead me and I will tell others to follow you too. That's all it is. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Let's follow Him together. And so as we conclude this series on discipleship, Three things from this passage that I think is so important for us to get. The first is that we must be servants of Jesus and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's what a disciple is. He is a a servant of Jesus and a steward of the mysteries of God. We make it so complicated, but that's what it is. I know we all have been fascinated... Um, entertained, and now maybe horrified by the success of Donald Trump. 
And, and we all, I mean, I've seen the post. I felt the same. We, we kind of, we want to wake up and go, what in the world? What? Is this going to stop? Is this for real? And I know we kind of go from that to, I can't believe those people out there. I mean, who are these people? But let me tell you something. And this is the first time in my ministry that I have ever spoken out against a political candidate. Uh, but that's precisely what I'm doing here. Uh, make no mistake about it. Uh, but as we think about this, we have one person and one people to blame. It's us. It's the church. <laughs> I mean, if, if evangelical Christians are one of his strongest backers, that's on me. That's on you. We have stopped making disciples of Jesus. We have turned Christianity into something that it's not. We have sold a Jesus that is a figment of our imagination, an idol that we might as well just carve and, 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 and form out of gold and put in the middle here. I mean, this is not Christianity. And yet it's on us because we, the church, have stopped making disciples. And friends, that's exactly what was going on in Corinth. You see, Paul says, makes this clear in verse 1, how he wants believers to view him. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You see, believers in Corinth, he, he went, he preached, they were converted. A church sprung up, but then they, re they replaced the message of servanthood with stardom. And there's two ways to pursue stardom. One is through accomplishment, and one is through association. Either you try to be the star through, you know, accomplishment, or you associate with those that you think are the stars. And by imputation, you get wrapped up in, oh, you see, if you go back to chapter 3, that's exactly what's going on. They were saying, oh, I'm of Paul. Oh, no, 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 I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of... And Paul says, are you kidding me? What is Apollos? What is Paul? Nothing more than servants of Christ Jesus. If you go back to 3, 4, that's what Paul says. And he reiterates it right here. He starts chapter 4 by, by, by this whole reality, regard us as nothing more, that's what he's saying, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The Greek word that he uses for um, steward there is not diakonos, but it's hyperitai. Diakonos is the, the word that we get, uh, the, the Greek word that we get deacon from. That is a servant. It's about the act of serving. But hyperitai is different. It's, it, it's the identity of being a servant. It's being under someone. And so what Paul is saying here is, I am nothing more than a servant, a slave of Jesus. I'm nothing more than that. Don't try to make me... There is no stardom in Christianity. We are nothing more and nothing less than servants of Jesus Christ who are here to steward the Word of God. Paul says this in verse 6, 
He says, I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. That you don't go beyond what is written. What is he talking about here? All the commentators agree he's talking about the Word of God. And so all a a servant of Christ is, all a disciple of Christ is, is a servant who stewards or manages or administrates the Word of God. The Greek word used there for steward means that. Administrator, manager, they are not the boss. What does a manager do? What does an administrator do? They take the plans of the ones above and they administer them. They don't take them and say, okay, how can we change this? Or That's how you lose your job. But a good administrator takes the plans and administers them in a glorious way. And that's all we are. But dear friends, is that how you view yourself? Is that how I view myself? That I am nothing more, nothing less than a servant of Jesus here to take the mysteries of God's Word, to peer into them, to glean from them, to pull out what He is saying that I might share it with other people. You see, that is what we are. That's what discipleship is. It is not holding privilege over somebody else. It's serving somebody else. We are servants. And if you are hearing what Paul is saying, then the second point is just a natural flow which comes out of uh, the next few verses, verses 8 through 13, that we are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Therefore, we are to be on mission, not vacation. Now, the Corinthian believers thought they were on vacation. And I'm going to point that out here in a minute. But let's, let's look at that because I think that's precisely where the church in Memphis has, that's where we have thought we have been for quite a while. Let's look at the first slide. We have those slides. Here we go. I've shown you these before, and those with MTR uh, have seen this numerous times. All right, if you take the ACT scores, these are the the tests that uh, high school juniors and seniors take in order to um, get into college, okay? Um, And so the highest possible score is 36. The lowest is uh, 12. That's just guessing on every question. The national average is 20. Uh, The average at UT, I can't believe that, 28, really? I didn't know there were smart people at University of Tennessee. But uh, anyway, all right, let's go to the next one. Sorry about that, UT fans. I love you. I thought they were all in Arkansas. Yes, there we go. All right, let's uh, let's keep going. All right, if you look at Memphis, um, and I think I've got a pointer here, but I just don't think it works on. No, it doesn't work on that. Um, All right, if you look at North and South Memphis, we're on this end. Downtown is right there uh, on this side, all right? If you look at North and South Memphis, you see the uh, the average score, 15, 16, uh, maybe down here 17, 19. Um, And the further you go out, if you follow Poplar all the way out, and you kind of, you've got this kind of skinny line across Poplar with Walnut Grove up here and maybe, I don't know, Central on this side. And then you kind of get east into the county and it opens up. Well, the further you go, you see out the average in the county is 24. That's Collierville and uh, all of those places. Well, if you come back downtown, uh, what this statistic is saying, that 
no more than 2% of those in South Memphis will get above a 21 on their ACT, less than 9% in North Memphis. And yet as you go east, 72% are going to get over 21. All right, let's go to the next slide. You see two, North and South Memphis. This is unemployment. Nobody's unemployed out in the county. Very few are unemployed along Poplar, Walnut Grove, Central. All right, going east. All right, go to the next slide. Household income. Uh, The darker the shade, the more the money. Well, you see the core business district of downtown, uh, Mud Island and and, and, um, 38103, very high, very strong, almost like the county, not near as high. But if you go just beyond that, 38126, 38105, and you start, again, coming this way, uh, you see north and south, there's huge financial disparity. All right, is there another slide? Single-parent households. The darker the uh, the shade, the, the more the single-parent households. Where are they? They're in north and south Memphis, not along that quarter and out east. Um, so if you take this, what's the common factor um, in the lighter shade, and that's appropriate that it's light shade, um, those that have the money uh, have, you know, the, the intact family, if you will, have... Um, Higher education uh, scores and so forth is predominantly white. Now, here's the reality. Memphis is one of the church cities in the country and yet the poorest city in the country. So you've got to also say that also along that quarter are white churches. And you see what we've done. (laughs) This was no mistake. This was strategic. If you look along that line, where are the private schools? Where are the country clubs? I mean, this is an indictment on the church. This is an indictment on the white church and white people who started schools and clubs and lived in places that they ensured there would be no black people. This is our city. Look at verses 8 through 13. Already you have all you want. If you didn't know it, Paul can be a sarcastic jerk. And that's what he's, that's, this is, I mean, pure sarcasm. Pure sarcasm. Oh, you already have all you want. Already you've become rich. Look at you. Without us, you have become kings. Ah, y'all are just living it up over there in Corinth. It's a party all the time. And would that you did reign. Oh, wouldn't it be great if you did reign so that we might share the rule with you, Corinthian Christians. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in high honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled we bless. When persecuted we endure. When slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. 
You see, what Paul is doing with tremendous sarcasm is saying, church, oh, man, I wish we could be like y'all. Y'all got it all together. But you don't give a damn about us. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you're living it up over there in Corinth, and we are considered scum of the earth. We're nothing, and you could care less. How has this happened? Because you've not taken discipleship seriously. Instead of becoming servants and stewards of the mystery of God, they become enamored, not merely with the the, the message of the gospel, with the messengers. They become more about their faction of Christianity than the king of Christianity and his mission in the world. I went to a breakfast Friday morning with um, a bunch of other pastors in town and a man by the name of Walter Brueggemann who is an Old Testament professor, and he indicted us as pastors in a very kind way, if you can do that, for not being the prophetic voice that we should be. He said, now, now, why do you hold back saying some things in the context you're in? He said, when it comes down to it, it's the same reason that... Um, that the prophets were probably tempted to do so, because when a prophet stood up and says, Thus saith the Lord, King, you must repent, he got his head chopped off. He said, For you, that means, you know, uh, the church wanting to go in a different direction and pushing you out. You see... What Brueggemann was saying is, and pointing to, is this the reality that idolatry of power and the way of one's life is real. You see, to take discipleship, following Christ in this world, is going to demand death and it's going to impact your comfort. There's no way to love your neighbor as yourself and not suffer personally. Uh, Think about the fight against slavery. Why did it take so long? Because those in charge just couldn't get it around their heads why it was so bad to treat people? No. It was money. It was a way of life. There were more millionaires in the Mississippi Delta and the plantations than anywhere else in the country. And so to end slavery, there was a cost to end slavery. A personal cost. And that was the fight. Think about the civil rights movement. I mean, why was it such a struggle? It was such a struggle because white people didn't want to sacrifice their way of living. I mean, who is going to do the cooking? Who's going to do the yards? Who's going to do the work that we've grown accustomed to not doing if we have equal rights? Now, this is real talk, right? I'm sorry, I'm kind of in the middle. Y'all are all kind of going, dang. And so, to fight for equal rights and be for equal rights meant that white housewives had to stop playing bridge and actually cook and clean the house. I'm serious. I'm not being facetious. They had to stop doing their social work at their social clubs and actually start doing some work 
if there's going to be equal rights and jobs better than a maid or a yard boy for African Americans. Now, let's go to today, where a black baby boy is statistically more likely to go to jail than college. Let's go today in Memphis, where 1% of businesses are owned by African Americans. 1%. Bernie, Hillary, Rubio, nor Cruz, and certainly not Trump, are the answer. The answer is right here in this room. The answer is Jesus Christ. Because how do I... How did I get my job as your pastor, one of your pastors? I had connections. I'm not the smartest. I'm not the most talented. You say, amen, preacher, amen. (laughs) I had connections. God had something to do with it. I had a compelling vision. But you could do better. Do you see? How's that going to change? It's why I want to see a pastoral residency started here, where we spend as pastors a lot of our time pouring into younger African-American minority men and women who feel called to the ministry and say, we're going to use our power, our influence, our money to leverage for your future and your good and the good of the church. Now, put that in the business world. My dad was begging me to go to law school. Why? Because he's a lawyer and had his own law practice. He said, son, you'll have a job when when you get out. So in other words, what he was saying was, I'm not sending out applications. Well, Dad, what if I'm not a good lawyer? Well, I'll teach you how to be a good lawyer. Well, Dad, what if I'm not the most income producing? Well, I'll teach you how to... So you see, I will sacrifice to get to meet you where you are because you're my son. Now, here's the root of Christianity. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Private schools are not evil in and of themselves. But if a school is started for the primary purpose of keeping black children out, then it is evil. And you say, well, that's not why, and I'm not, just hear me, follow with me. Brueggemann's uh, claims are coming back to me now, and I'm I'm actually speaking this in public, but follow with me. It's not that we're wrong being concerned about the education of our children, but as Christians, we are not only to be concerned about the education of our children, but our neighbor's children. We are not only to be concerned about the future and business and learning and so forth for our personal children. Yes, we should be concerned about our children, but not at the expense and not to the neglect and not in complete ignorance and and blindness to what's going on in the house next door or across the city because we've moved so far away from those people. Do you see what I'm saying? The the positive upside of this is is this. 
that we the church are the only solution to what ails the city. This is the power right here in this room and through all the churches across this city this morning. If we take this one simple message critically serious, God made, no, excuse me, Jesus became poor, Jesus became poor that we might become rich. Jesus became poor. Jesus left his riches, took on poverty, so that we might be rich in him. That's the, it doesn't get any more basic and simple than that. So what does that mean, Richard? Does that mean, I don't know what that means. What that means is, is in your business, you've got to start thinking about your neighbor's children. In, in education, you've got to start thinking about your neighbor's children. Maybe that looks like mentoring. Maybe that looks like getting with a single mom in this church and saying, how can I help you? Most single moms are working one, two, maybe even three jobs. How in the world can they be at home from three to five pouring into the homework? Or there early in the morning when the children are young and teaching them to... I mean, we've got to be the army of God and the people of God. And we've got to, to own... The children of our neighbor by love. And when we do that, we will make disciples of Jesus. I was with somebody this week. I was with two people this week. This is crazy. It just occurred to me that both of them pointed to St. Patrick's Catholic Church opening the doors to their families for to feed them and help them in times of need. One is an incredibly successful businessman on the, I think he's on the board of regents at the University of Memphis. And he said, yeah, I grew up in a poor family. We lived on Butler and, and um, my mom would take us to the Catholic church to get food. That's discipleship. <laughs> uh, that's it. We don't let people suffer because Jesus has not let us suffer. And then finally, be a follower of Jesus, not a Facebook friend. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think this moment would be this serious when I wrote this. I think that, that we in the church have sold... Facebook friending Jesus. Uh, we have lowered his demand so small that we say, oh, just like him. Just accept his friendship. His friendship invitation. Uh, just, you know, read his post from now and then. I'll just feel so good and go out for the rest of the day. Jesus said this in Matthew sixteen twenty four: Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny him themselves. And take up the cross and follow me. See, our relationship with Jesus is a paradigm shift. A relationship with Jesus is like falling in love. I also asked two couples this week that are engaged, what, what's, you know, why is that one different from all the others you've, you've, you've dated? Oh, and they just, you know, they've been converted to the beauties of this other person. And that's what, 
That's what becoming a follower of Jesus is about. Jesus said this in, in, in John chapter 3. Truly, truly. He says this to, to one of the great, to one of the most, to a good man. That's the way to say it. A good, moral, up, you couldn't find a better man than Nicodemus. He was a, a, a leader of the Jews, a Pharisee. And Jesus looks at him. Remember, he's not talking to, I don't know, a prostitute, a gangbanger. He's talking to a religious man. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from nor where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There are competing kingdoms in this world. You're either in the kingdom of man or you're in the kingdom of God. And a sign that you're in the kingdom of man is you're always trying to to get in. You're trying to be in. You're trying to prove yourself. You're using your profession. You're using your relationships. You're using whatever means you have to prove that I'm in, that I'm okay. But the difference when you're in the kingdom of God is you say, I know that the only way that I can be in is through the death and resurrection, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I must be brought in through faith in what Christ has done for me. There is nothing in my hands I bring, nothing, simply to the cross I cling. I have one treasure and it's Jesus. I don't care how good looking I am. I don't care how strong or fast I am. I don't care how much money I have. The, my only hope in life is Jesus. And when it's, it's a paradigm shift. When you come to that point, that means that the Spirit of God has brought you there. And if you've received Christ, you've literally become born again. And we've stopped preaching that. You must be born again to be in the kingdom of God. And the way that you know that you're, you're born again is His grace and His mercy and His love is everything to you. And that's what you want to live for. Not to get it, but because you know you got it. And so I ask you, have you been born again? Do you know Jesus? Are, the, are His operating principles the operating principles of your life? Do you take your sins seriously and you come to the cross, you come to these tables and you know that Jesus has died for your sin and you know that you've been absolved and He has lavished on you His righteousness? Do you know that? A disciple of Jesus knows that. That's what compels him to give up whatever, to live for others. It's because God became man, lived under the law in my place, went to the cross, became my sin, died for my sin, took the judgment of His Father, and then was raised to life so that now through faith in Him, all that's true about Him is true about me. Does that message and that reality captivate your soul? If not, you're not going to be a disciple maker of Jesus. You're going to sell religion, you're going to sell morality, you're going to sell education, but you're not going to 
put forth Jesus Christ as the hope of another person's life. So dear friends, are you born again? And do you understand that this is what we're after when we're going to others and we're giving them the message of the gospel? That's why we have to be desperate and on our knees. It's not about your presentation. It's about God's power at work. That's how Paul ends this. I'm coming, guys. I'm coming, and I'm going to look at what's going on. And really what's going on is a bunch of talk. But the gospel of Jesus Christ consists in power. I love that phrase. Consists in power. Power to change somebody's life. Power to resurrect a spiritually dead person. That's what you're taking to the world. You're taking His power and you're a dependent servant and a steward of the mysteries of God as you do it. All clothed in the love of Jesus Christ. Dear friends, may we go and make disciples. And if the first step of that is coming to Jesus, then do that today. Come to these tables and say, I take Jesus. I take Jesus. He's all I need and He's all I want. If that's you today, these tables are for you. Would you come and would you glory in what Christ has done for you? Amen.